You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. They didn't mean to start a country. They came from all over the British North American colonies to meet in one place. They first met in a tavern and then in a carpenter's guild hall. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Observant New Englanders, Quakers from Philadelphia, lawyers from Connecticut, indigo planters from South Carolina, militia leaders from Delaware, all together, and the idea was to meet and show common cause for those in Boston now, an occupied city, and to show a united front of resistance to the latest rules from Parliament, which affected almost every aspect of American commercial life, who they could trade with, how much iron they could produce, where they could settle, how their legislatures and courts would operate, and who ultimately was in control. Did they have any rights that came directly from the British nation, or was everything through that country's legislative body which they had no say in? Only one of these acts had anything to do with tea, though when tea was dumped in the river, that's what history records, but As George Washington writes to his friend Brian Fairfax, who had a different opinion than he, Washington, about how to handle the relations with Britain, that I differ widely from you, Washington tells Fairfax, in respect to the mode of obtaining a repeal of the acts, I shall not hesitate to acknowledge. I see nothing on the one hand to induce a belief that Parliament would embrace a favorable opportunity of repealing acts, which they go on with great rapidity to pass. Fairfax just wants to write a petition. Washington, the delegate to this new convention, says, Sir, what is it we are contending against? Is it against the paying of a small amount on tea because it is burdensome? No, it is the right only. We have all along disputed. The conduct of the Boston people could not justify the rigor of their measures. Nor did that measure require an act to deprive the government of Massachusetts of their charter or to exempt offenders from trial in the place where the offenses were committed. That's one of the acts that this one really set Washington and others off. They called it the Murder Act, that if someone committed an offense in America, they could be tried as far away as London. Washington was known, he had served in the French and Indian War, but perhaps was not as well known yet as the New Englanders Samuel Adams and his cousin John, who were mobbed as their coach cobbled down to the country's largest city, stopping in New Haven, stopping in New York to be honored and dined. Patrick Henry of Virginia, famous for his liberty or death speech. And Peyton Randolph, unknown to us now, but then very much the power in Virginia, speaker of the resistant Virginia House of Burgesses, also cousin to a member of that body, Thomas Jefferson, who would not be attending this First Continental Congress yet. Stephen Crane of New Jersey, great-great-grandfather to the future author of The Red Badge of Courage, one of the less-known delegates to the convention. James Duane of New York, 
son of a former British naval officer who would travel down to be sure that Congress didn't condone any war or any violence. A view shared by Chris Humphreys from Pennsylvania, a Quaker of some means, who later would turn down signing the Declaration of Independence, thinking of it an instrument of war. The Swedish-American John Morton, who lived a short distance from the meeting site. Samuel Hopkins of Rhode Island. John Hart of New Jersey. These are people who would go on to sign the Declaration of Independence. Indeed, all of the colonies, save Georgia, far away, distant, and dealing with a problem with Native Americans on its borders, not wanting to engage in trouble right now, sent representatives to this First Continental Congress in September 1774 to the 6,000-house city, Philadelphia. It would be an assembly of the wisest people of the continent, said John Adams, and that would be the case. Though the mechanism of creating a Congress also served a purpose to jump over, everyone felt, the provincial politics of each colony and create a momentum for action. And they ate. God, how they ate. This from John Furling's Independence, The Struggle to Set America Free. Good book. Nearly every evening, socially prominent Philadelphians invited a delegate or two from several colonies to a sumptuous dinner party. At one affair, said a congressman, the table groaned with curds and creams, jellies, sweetmeats of various sorts, twenty sorts of tarts, fools, trifles, floating islands, whipped syllabubs, etc., etc., parmesan cheese, punch, wine, porter, beer, on and on. On another occasion, the guests had a dessert of melons, fine beyond description and pears and peaches as excellent. Clusters of congressmen gathered over steaming pots of tea and cold tankers of beer to chat and to size up one another. On September 1st, the 25 delegates already in town spent a long evening dining together in a private room at the city tavern, which was, up until COVID-19, you know, restored and opened and still a great place to eat, that original building. Hopefully it reopens again. Some of the congressmen drank too much. Adams said that at one party, he drank Madeira at a great rate. He remained sober, or so he said, but he noted that Richard Henry Lee and Benjamin Harrison from Virginia got very high. What does that all mean? What does it matter? I think it's like a lot of things. These people are heroes, these delegates coming down to this Continental Congress. And you hear a lot that the state or the colony at the time of Pennsylvania, along with New Jersey and New York, were divided. And it's very true. But there is a lot of support for at least standing up for American rights, if not at this point, as we'll discuss, full revolution. The sturdy brick building where they spent their time, that building with a small dome on part of its roof, was Carpenter's Hall, and it had indeed been built by Philadelphia's talented master carpenters four years before. They chose it deliberately. Joseph Galloway, who was at this time the Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly, offered them the Pennsylvania State House, the building that would we would know today as Independence Hall. At this time, they refused that. There's reasons for that, having to do with Galloway, perhaps, being a little suspicious of any offer from him, 
and him setting the scene. But I also think they wanted to be, at this moment, slightly removed in their own building than any one of the colonies. Here's what James Henderson says about the choice of location. It was not a decision of grave importance, but it was a straw in the wind. The State House had an aura of legitimacy that Carpenter's Hall, a private guild house associated with the radical Philadelphia mechanics, did not. You ever have one of these books that's on your bookshelf and it's just kind of like staring at you? You're supposed to read it and you haven't. And for me, that's this blue book. Party Politics and the Continental Congress by Henderson. Another early decision that distressed Galloway was the selection of Charles Thompson, the Sam Adams of Philadelphia, as secretary for the Congress. Galloway had long distrusted Thomas, whom he thought, Thompson, who he thought was not only radical, but void of principle and virtue. In fact, Henderson goes on to say that from Galloway's letters to William Franklin, because he's good friends with them and he's writing him, he thinks that there's a conspiracy of the radicals and that they all wrote letters to each other and decided the mechanism of what was to happen. I cannot say, but from this day's appearance of proceedings, I have altered very much my last sentiments. The Virginians and Carolinians seem very much among the Bostonians. Both of these measures, it seems, were privately settled by an interest made out of doors. And then Henderson notes that Galloway's probably right, because even though the request to meet in Carpenter's Hall might be something that would come from one of the Bostonians, they have it come from one of the Carolinians, Thomas Lynch of South Carolina. They debated various reactions to British Parliament's actions, especially the declaration that Parliament, the Declaratory Act, Declaratory Act, that Parliament was in control of Americans in all cases whatsoever. On the British side of the ocean, the reason this act is passed is because they repeal the Stamp Act. But the politics in Parliament, even under a favorable prime minister at that time, when they repeal the Stamp Act, is such that they have to do something else to kind of set their records straight. And so that's one of the acts passed. That, by the way, yes, we're repealing this, but remember, we're in control. Well, this didn't satisfy Americans and did not satisfy any of the Americans that were to meet in this room. All delegates now knew the status quo was unacceptable. But it's important when we discuss the First Continental Congress. That's the one that meets in an earlier year than we're used to discussing with the Revolution, and that's 1774. Um, that this body is a divided body and there'll be opinions expressed in this Congress that you couldn't even get away with in the Congress that will debate the Declaration of Independence in 1776. There are people in this Congress that will no longer be welcome. They're conservatives against any severing of the bond between Britain and America and radicals who thought that London had nothing to do, no say-so with the running of America. And if they were not necessarily going to create a country and call for independence, we were just going to run things from this side of the ocean. That was the range of views in the room. Joseph Galloway, head of the Assembly Party, for years a good friend to Benjamin Franklin, was wanted this meeting as much as John Adams did. So John Adams wants this meeting to get everybody together, leap over provincial objections with a continental state of feeling. 
right? That would leap over local politics. Joseph Galloway, uh, who many said was a kind of a stuck-up guy, spent a lot of time in his house. The reason he's in control of Pennsylvania politics, he's a long association with Benjamin Franklin, who at this time is turning towards against England, but previously had been living in London, actually wants to become head of Pennsylvania and to take the Pennsylvania colony away from the Pens and to make it a royal car- colony with a charter that he can be head of. Um, he's good friends with Franklin for a while. He creates a powerful party in Pennsylvania. But one of the reasons that Galloway is so powerful is not because there's any kind of a vote across the colony of Pennsylvania. It's because there's an extremely gerrymandered system that will go on for a long time until the Pennsylvania becomes a state that gives the Philadelphia area much more representation than the western counties. He likes this idea of a Continental Congress, too. Bring everybody down and we can expose that the middle colonies, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, feel a lot differently from the hotheads in Massachusetts or the belligerents in Virginia. Um, One thing out of the question with this group was the raising of arms. Delegates were fixed against hostilities and ruptures, John Adams said. Even the creation of militias proposed by Virginians Patrick Henry and Richard Henry Lee, that each colony should just create a militia and keep it ready, was not considered. They only wanted it as a last resort, John Adams said, and this they did not yet see. But this Congress's deliberations are slow. This was not a meeting in Massachusetts. Watched carefully by local press, local Quakers, colonial governors like William Franklin across in New Jersey, son of Benjamin Franklin, loyal to the British. The Anglican Tory Thomas Bradbury Chandler, in recalling the origins of the First Continental Congress, remarked that opposition to the Acts of Parliament was taken out of the hands of the people whose imprudence already had much injured the cause, and it was committed to the conduct of a few gentlemen of distinction and character, in whose wisdom, integrity, and honor the greatest confidence was reposed. Here's what James Henderson says. Had Chandler's hope for an accommodation be realized, the First Continental Congress might have gone down in history like the Stamp Act Congress. Instead, the Congress set the stage for a colonial revolution. But it's difficult to scan the list of delegates to the Congress or to read their instructions without agreeing with Chandler's initial expectation. Certainly most of the delegates could have not have given immediate alarm to conservatives who wished to make Congress an antidote for radical contagion that had festered in Massachusetts. The brace of the Adamses was present, to be sure, but there were men of wealth and distinguished political station. The instructions to the Massachusetts delegates spoke of restoration of union and harmony to Pennsylvania. They were strictly charged to avoid anything indecent or disrespectful to the mother state. Delaware instructions urged the adoption of prudent and lawful measures, and those of South Carolina also stressed lawful measures. And that's the scene that you have. And as delegates come from all across the continent to Pennsylvania, they're being warned a bit about Galloway. John Dickinson, who Galloway has kicked out of this meeting for being too radical. It's funny because later when you get to the next Congress, he's going to be one of the people against the Declaration of Independence is written now against Galloway. 
he's going to tell people, watch out for this Galloway guy. So they get word about him right from the beginning. Discussions went on for weeks. And at one point, there's a report that Boston is being bombarded by British vessels. That got a resolution of protest out the door quickly. But it turned out the report was false. And the Congress settled back to its slow business. And that's when Galloway made his move to turn this Congress. He knows his reputation. And he makes it clear that any idea of millions of people being run by a distant parliament in which they have no representation was beyond reason and common sense and could not be considered. But here is the issue he thought. He also felt that Americans were too radical in wanting to divorce themselves from from British power altogether. There hadn't been enough constitutional structure because of the way the colonies were formed, each one being different. Massachusetts has a very long history, as does Virginia. Pennsylvanians, just about 100 years. Georgia was just founded, really, 30 or 40 years before. South Carolina is founded from a colony from the Caribbean, not even sailing from London. So the different formations of all of these colonies means that there wasn't a lot of thought put into it. And all you need is an act of union. So let's petition the king and parliament for this. We ask for a colonial council, a kind of American parliament that will be elected by the colonies. And they will have powers equal to a parliament when the issue at hand is something involving America. And then there will be a president general who would be appointed by the king who would administer the colony, all the colonies, and represent the crown. So it's important to note that if we think about Joseph Galloway in the history of American Revolution at all, we see him as kind of a Tory, and this was just Tory babble and the like, and he'll be off pretty soon and not part of the story. But it is important to note that even Galloway's proposal is radical probably from the point of view of London. It might have been considered, it might not have. There was no inert support that we know of for such a proposal generating out of London. London had already declared Parliament was in control in all cases whatsoever over the Americans. So Galloway's plan, in a sense, when viewed in the context of the Declaratory Act, was radical. In any case, it doesn't matter. It is voted down in this Congress. William Franklin, governor of New Jersey, loyal to the British, wrote to Lord Dartmouth, who is the American minister in London. Franklin writes to him with great regret that Congress failed to consider such a plan. They dared not only consider it, but deigned to erase it from the minutes. Galloway would go on to lose his position as Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly and would publish his attempted plan in a pamphlet to the colonies. Here's what Furling writes. No one reason can account for the opposition to Galloway's plan. Most delegates wanted relief for Boston as rapidly as possible. A constitutional debate in Congress, and possibly in London as well, would have dragged out a resolution of the crisis. In addition, years earlier, the hardliners had come to believe that Parliament had no authority over America. They had no wish to revisit the issue. Some congressmen wanted more autonomy for America than would have existed under Galloway's plan. Others longed for their colony to be nearly self-governing. 
and we're loath to surrender authority to a national Congress. So even this American parliament will be a problem for some. With Galloway's proposal shelved, the pace of Congress quickened. During the next three weeks, the delegates rapidly moved through a breathtaking series of substantive decisions. So writes Furling. Here's another point that Furling makes, which is interesting as to what happened after Galloway's plan was shelved. It's actually tabled, but it's not going to be discussed again and then eventually erased from the minutes, as Franklin had indicated. But some of the more radical members in Massachusetts also have to come in line a bit after Galloway's plan. Another reality also haunted the radical New Englanders. It was readily apparent, as John Adams noted, Not only that absolute independency was an idea which startles people here, but also that the feeling was so widespread that should Massachusetts provoke a rupture with the British troops, all is lost. In other words, if Yankee hotheads were thought to have started a war, American unity would be shattered. Here's what else might have influenced their opinion. A letter in the Pennsylvania Gazette, which... That paper's publisher had held on to a letter from London from July that was none too kind about the meeting at the Continental Congress. The resolutions of Philadelphia and those of Maryland or Virginia, I must, however, tell you, were esteemed both by the court and the merchants of the city very inoffensive. And as the mere ebullitions of a set of angry men whose force were spent the day they were made, and the proposed Congress is spoken of and really considered both by the administration and all the merchants of the city as a scheme that will produce no sort of security to the liberty of the colonies, nor trouble to administration. That it will produce nothing more than a remonstrance or a petition of right. This letter from London is goading you to, uh, oh, this Congress isn't going to produce anything. You know, and making every delegate want to do the opposite. Uh, There's something else. There's the arrival of Paul Revere on his horse. Yes, that Paul Revere with the Suffolk Resolves, where Massachusetts towns had decided together not to accept the authority of Parliament. And this is brought and accepted into the record of Congress. John Jay of New York framed the issue remaining for the Congress after the defeat of the Galloway Plan, and it was three ways. There could be negotiation, there could be embargo, or there could be war. And when looked at that way, embargo rose to the surface. What the First Continental Congress is really brandishing as a weapon is not a bunch of muskets, but non-importation. We're simply not going to buy British goods. No British tea, but also none of their goods. It's hard. It's a little hard, especially for the New England states. And they ask for an exemption for fishing equipment, for instance, so that Nova Scotia won't take them over in terms of competition for fishing. So this wasn't a full ban. The Continental Congress also decides something else, that the enforcement of this these rules will be conducted by committees of correspondence and inspection in the local areas. And something else, Congress will reconstitute itself in one year to determine if there are still grievances, grievances and if so, to set up further actions. This, is, this last one's a pretty, they're both pretty important. One is kind of giving teeth to measures that a body meeting in Philadelphia that just met each other really couldn't enforce. 
and by throwing it to the locals for enforcement under their aegis. And then the second is Congress institutes that it will be a body that's reconstituting itself. And you can draw a line directly from this first Continental Congress then to the current U.S. House of Representatives with some modifications. There is one minor event at the first Continental Congress that might have had major implications, and that's when Patrick Henry of Virginia, as we said, he's already a famous orator and and, um, militia leader, and he makes his speech. Uh, Here's what Silas Dean says about Patrick Henry. He was the completest speaker I have ever heard, but in a letter, I can give you no idea of the music of his voice or the high-wrought yet natural elegance of his style. And I'm going to read John Kukla's account from his book, Patrick Henry, Champion of Liberty. Patrick Henry's oratorical skills were impressive, of course, but the delegates placed greater weight on his ideas. In 1763 and 1765, Henry had contended that Parliament had no authority over America, and King George III was in danger of violating the contract between a king and his subjects. American sentiment had taken a decade to catch up. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Now as the colonies met in Congress and groped towards more unity in their resistance, Henry stood once again in the vanguard. Gone was the peach blossom coat from the previous spring. Henry came to Congress clad in a dark suit of minister's gray and an unpowdered wig. Secretary Charles Thompson later admitted that he winced in anticipation of a rural politician embarrassing himself before so distinguished an audience when someone who looked like a country person rose to address the Congress. But as he proceeded, Thompson recalled, the seemingly rustic speaker evinced such an unusual force of argument and such a novel and impassioned eloquence as soon electrified the whole house. Wasting not a word on nostalgic hopes for reconciliation with Great Britain or idle dreams of turning back the clock to 1763, he pointed to the virtual collapse of parliamentary and royal authority in America 
The British invasion and occupation of Boston revealed a stark truth. Fleets and armies, Henry declared in the opening moments of the debate, show that government is dissolved. Without speaking loud of independence, Henry gazed unflinchingly towards a future that terrified Joseph Galloway. Petitions, memorials, and the economic boycott might buy needed time to prepare for armed resistance. But John Locke's appeal to heaven was at hand. We are in a state of nature, Henry declared, according to several delegates' notes of the congressional debates, and he says something else. Government is dissolved. The distinctions between Virginians, Pennsylvanians, New Yorkers, and New Englanders are no more. I am not a Virginian, but an American. You know, by all rights, this could be as famous as give me liberty or give me death, but didn't work out that way. But it was impactful for the delegates there. Henry was speaking in support of allocating votes in Congress by population, which would have benefited the larger colonies of Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts. So that's his proposal, too. Let's just vote as a body. We're all Americans. We're all here. Let's just vote as a body. And it's important because had Henry prevailed, this Congress, as we already said, is the ancestor of the U.S. Congress. It's the ancestor, let's start with, of the Confederation Congress that creates the Constitutional Convention. But the precedent already been set for those bodies of voting by state. So what Henry wants is a voting by members. And, you know, that's what we have in the House of Representatives today, but there is a Senate. So when we think of representation in America, when we think of the lines between states and state powers and federal powers, you know, understand that at least at this point, because I think his opinion is going to change a little when we get to the constitutional debate, which Henry is not a supporter of the U.S. Constitution as constructed. Um, but at least right now, he's looking for a more democratic system of representation. One continent, one country, let's vote. It is something to think about because Henry, who is a slaveholder, who supported slavery. Now, I have a whole podcast. We're going to replay it uh, July 4th coming, you know, next year, which is going to discuss his role in slavery because, you know, he also supports laws that enable slaves to be emancipated. He also, as a governor, has discussions with Virginia's Quaker abolitionists that many others in Virginia government would not have and and things like that. But that's where he is coming from, a slave owner representing other slave owners. And yet his proposal would have possibly unintentionally, he's not doing this to do at all, anything to do with slavery, but unintentionally would have made the path to ending slavery easier if it was a simple democratic vote and not states being able to block things in the Senate. And then also civil rights, much easier without senatorial powers and voting by states and the like. So it's an interesting moment that occurs at this very first Congress that determines everything. That then determines by the time you get to, there's going to be a second Continental Congress, there's going to be a Confederation Congress, and there's going to be a Constitutional Convention that they're going to vote by state, which is the direct descendants of the colonies in every way. There's no new state created um, during that process. So you have the 13 states. Because they vote as states, a Senate's created. And it's just, it, it's, it's a moment in time to look at. Well, Henry doesn't get his way in this meeting. I mean, this is the way Furling describes it. 
The smaller provinces wanting an equal voice naturally pushed for each colony getting a vote. If these proceedings lead to war, Samuel Ward of Tiny Rhode Island candidly asserted, the smallest colony would suffer as much as the greatest. Henry said that Congress must be structured in what he called a democratical matter. A majority of those present in voting should decide every question. It was a magnificent, though futile, speech. In truth, the larger colonies never had a chance. The smaller colonies had no intention of being led where they did not wish to go. And Massachusetts, one of the larger colonies, needed all the help it could get in resisting the coercive acts. This critical choice would color the proceedings of Congress on every substantive issue. Throughout the American Revolution, the members of Congress represented colonies or states, not people. Here's another interesting point that uh, Furling brings up about this First Continental Congress. Congress immediately agreed to meet in secret, a practice from which it also never varied. Its members wished to speak as they pleased, free from intimidation by noisy spectators. It's still an achievement. History Central has this. The First Continental Congress, while state allegiances have not disappeared even today, the First Continental Congress was an essential milestone in establishing a collective identity for colonies and Americans. So, you know, I'm, I'm to a degree, there's just a little bit here, and I'm saying a lot about it, and I get that. Um, but I think it's important. One is that a decision is made kind of diagonally at this conference that will affect everything thereafter. And it goes to show you that historical figures can have an impact even that they didn't intend. So Henry, again, you know, might have been responsible for unearthing change that possibly he didn't want by, by insisting on democracy early on. So that, that's an interesting point to think about when we think about historical figures. And, you know, uh, I don't want to go into statues, but, you know, when we think about the reputation of historical figures, think about indirect contributions that they made that later could be taken up by other actors. You know, Lincoln is going to look at everything these guys are doing and take inspiration from it. Okay, put that aside. Point number two, um, no colony or state declared war on Britain in and of itself. It was a continental effort. Each colony eventually sent delegates, because even Georgia eventually is going to join the Second Continental Congress, uh, awaited instructions from the Continental Congress, and the war was run by a Continental Congress. It's an important point to realize that Local control, say militias, say, you know, what were you going to do when a British force invades this day? That was going to be up to the governor of that area, hopefully assisted by the Continental Congress when that could be arranged. But the war was being conducted. The general, Washington, is appointed by a Continental Congress. So what's determined is that there will be a Continental Association Okay, so instead of a declaration of independence, that's not on their thoughts. Um, instead of a declaration of independence, there's a continental association. This is still a group of colonies. The signers will give up British merchandise, also anything that might bear a tax, like goods that are bought from China or from like Madeira, the Caribbean, 
where they might have to pay a British tax. They're not going to do that anymore. They would also discountenance and discourage every species of extravagance and dissipation, especially all horse racing, all kinds of gambling, cockfighting, expositions and shows, plays, and other expensive diversions and entertainments. I mean, this is supposed to be a period of sacrifice, is what they're saying. This from Woody Halton's Liberty is Sweet, the Hidden History of the American Revolution. Halton writes, As instructed, the Virginia delegates demanded and received the right to sell their tobacco for one more year, meaning it would arrive in Britain through most of 1775. Another controversy around non-exportation came to a head only on October 20th, after the delegates had begun signing the Continental Association. The South Carolinians suddenly decided that they wanted an exception for their two largest exports, rice and indigo, which, unlike tobacco, were selling well. Rebuffed, all but one walked out of the Congress, returning only after the other delegations agreed to the compromise. We will never know whether immediate non-exportation would have forced Parliament to make concessions. We shouldn't think of it in isolation as just everyone thought it was a great thing who lived on the continent. There was some negative reaction to this Congress. Uh, There's some opposition seen in newspapers in New Jersey, which would have been very close to the action in Philadelphia. A gentleman identifying as Z wrote in a New Jersey paper, that he found that his fears were verified by these proceedings. With sovereign contempt, this Congress overlooks Parliament and appeals to the people. They deny us trade with Britain and take it upon themselves to put heaven knows who in charge of the Customs House to inspect. They treat the British name with open enmity. Z laughs at how some products like rice are exempted But New Jersey and Pennsylvania's crops of wheat, lumber, beef were not exempted from the non-exportation ban. But he's especially upset about the 11th article, which calls for committees of correspondence who can hold up the most respectable characters among us and turn him over to be treated as an enemy of the country. We have entered a new mode of government inconsistent with our liberty. That's what Z writes. A freeholder from Essex joins him. He read with interest to see what Congress had to say and found their resolves rude and insolent. I'd rather submit to the will of a king than the caprices of a committee man. So says the freeholder from Essex. We should not think that everyone just said, this is great what's going on with the association. Um, There were many newspaper debates. For William Franklin writing to Dartmouth, the Congress's resolves left the mother country no option than to put down the resistance. Less than a year later, Franklin would be right. Muskets would be firing. Another note to make. Thomas Jefferson is not here at this First Continental Congress. There's no, um, you know, he's not supposed to be there. He's cousin to Peyton Randolph, who's much more famous. But he is supposed to go to the Virginia Convention, which artfully Thomas Jefferson calls the people of Virginia in convention. He's supposed to go there at Williamsburg to pick delegates and to instruct delegates who are going to Philadelphia. He cannot. He is sick and has to turn back. 
And there's probably a lot of regret on his part about this because I think he has a lot. We know he has a lot to say about it. And from his sickbed, he writes the instructions to the delegates that he would have written if he were able to. He can't. He already has this partially written. He had to um, leave some blanks of historical references that he couldn't would have to go look up you know, in his library or in Williamsburg when he got there. Hey, I mean, you know, we go to that cliche. We don't have the internet, right? Friends in Virginia decide to publish this. And Jefferson's words expressed in what a pamphlet that will be called a summary of the view of the rights of British North America will go farther than his words at a convention in Virginia would ever have gone. It's read in Philadelphia. It's read by Peyton Randolph and the others before they go to that convention and before they go to Congress. It's read in New York and it's read in London. Jefferson is really seen in his summary view as getting to new ground and arguing things artfully. Um, Our ancestors, before their emigration to America, were the free inhabitants of the British dominions in Europe and possessed a right which nature has given to all men, of departing from the country in with chance, not choice, has placed them, of going in quest of new habitations, and there establishing new societies under such laws and regulations, as to them shall seem most likely to promote public happiness, that their Saxon, their Saxon ancestors had under this universal law, in like manner, left their native wilds and woods in the north of Europe, had possessed themselves of the island of Britain, and then, less charged with inhabitants, and had established there that system of laws which has so long been the glory and protection of that country. There was no claim of superiority or dependence asserted them over the mother country from which they had migrated, and if a claim were such made, the majesty's subjects in Great Britain would have had too firm a feeling of the rights they had to bow down to the sovereignty of their state before such visionary pretensions. So he starts out right from the beginning. And this is really a letter to King George III, even though it's framed in the sense as instructions to the Virginia delegates. But he right from the beginning says, we're British citizens. And do you think the the Saxons that came to the British island would have responded to some call from France or Germany or elsewhere saying, well, you're really um, citizens here and we're going to tell you what to do. No way. And do we think Jefferson says that his relatives, the Jeffersons of England who came over, had decided to give their rights away when they came on the boat? And that's essentially what he's arguing. And it's a great position to put the argument, to really expose what Parliament is doing as extraordinary. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. 
Zachary Carabell, and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. He really makes the point that the American in the American colonies, you know, it was our hard work. It was generations of hard work that built up America. Not a shilling was ever issued from the public treasuries of his majesties or his ancestors for their assistance till of very late times after the colonies had become established on a firm and permanent footing. And just in case they're going to argue, well, Jefferson, you're not, you're not thinking of the French and Indian War that we just fought on your behalf to protect Virginia and Massachusetts and the other colonies. London spent money, sent armies over. That then indeed, having become valuable to Great Britain for her commercial purposes, his parliament was pleased to lend them assistance against an enemy who would fain have drawn herself the benefits of their commerce to the great aggrandizement of herself and danger of Great Britain. Such assistance and in such circumstances they'd often given to Portugal and other allied states with whom they carry on commercial intercourse. Yet these states never supposed that by calling in her aid, they thereby submitted themselves to her sovereignty. Had such terms been proposed, they would have been rejected with disdain. So you hear what Jefferson's arguing here. Britain helps out Portugal once in a while. It's not like Britain then turns to Portugal and say, we own you, we control you in all cases whatsoever. And also, you never gave the Americans the ability to turn down the offer. If this is what the strings that were attached with it, we might have felt differently. You did it in two separate occasions. It's really a great point. He makes other points. When you look at free trade, that the Americans can trade with the French, they can trade with the French West Indies colonies, that they can trade with the British, they can trade with Spanish colonies and others. That right, free trade with all parts of the world possessed by the American colonists as of natural right, which no law of their own had taken away or abridged, was the next object of unjust encroachment. And he talks about how 
in several parts of this letter how badly they had been treated by the Stuart kings. Okay, and George III is Hanoverian. They're, they're supposed to take over from the Stuarts and be better kings, um, more respectful of their subjects' liberties. That very quickly, there were some limits to trade instituted by the Stuarts, but it was quickly recalled. Virginia, for instance, has a treaty from 1651 that says they should have free trade as the people of England do enjoy to all places and with all nations according to the laws of that commonwealth. He talks about the, the, the injustice of the Tea Act and of what they're doing in Massachusetts. Here's what Professor Jorig Nipperath says, the summary view resonates quite differently from the petitions, remonstrances, and declarations of a decade earlier. Gone are the beseeching tone and the professions of submission to royal and parliamentary authority. Instead, one finds truculence penned in the language of truth and divested of those expressions of servility. Jefferson sets forth the evolved American position that the only tolerable constitutional arrangement within an imperial system was one of local self-government, uncontrolled by Parliament, lest one free and independent legislature takes upon itself to suspend the powers of another, free and independent as itself. I like how um, I like how one author describes it, uh, telling off the king from a uh, Journal of North Carolina history, telling off the king, uh, 1987 article, telling off the king. Referred to consistently in the third person as his majesty or the king, he seems personally somewhat sheltered from the resentful rhetoric. But suddenly, to hear him address directly a few paragraphs from the end is to be forced to imagine that Jefferson's strong words are being delivered to the king in person. But your majesty or your governors have carried the power of dissolving colonial legislatures beyond every limit known or provided for by the laws. The effect is electrifying. What has happened? As a matter of fact, for the moment, almost nothing. The very next sentence lapses back to the third person, they, their, he, his. But the momentary shift to the second person possessive foreshadows the final paragraph, when the indictment of the king at its climax burst out in the apostrophe, burst out in the apostrophe, bursts out in the apostrophe. Open your breast, sire, to liberal and expanded thought. This rather metaphysical conceit is the beginning of a paration that is sustained to the final word of the pamphlet. Dropping all pretense to being a resolution that a letter should be written to the king, a summary view formally transcends itself by becoming that letter, telling off the king, rising in next to the last sentence, to the rhetorical flourish of, the God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. The hand of force may destroy but cannot disjoin them. This, sire, is our last, our determined resolution. Let those flatter who fear. It is not an American art. The kings are the servants, not the proprietors of the people. He points out how in the past, Maryland was granted to Lord Baltimore, Pennsylvania to Penn. The province of Carolina was in the year 1663, granted by letters of patent of majesty King Charles II to the Honorable Edward of Clarendon, George Duke of Albemarle. New York was granted to the Duke of York. New Jersey, which the Duke of York convened to Lord Berkeley and to George Carteret. So also were the Delaware counties. So what you're seeing in Jefferson's letter, and then he says, at this day, 
as no exercise of such power or dividing or dismembering a country has ever occurred in His Majesty's realm of England, though now a very ancient ancient standing, nor could it be justified. So in other words, and this is, I think, something always to keep in mind about the psychology of Jefferson and the average American thinking about these things at the time of the American Revolution, is that it's not too far in their history that kings have arbitrarily picked lands of the American continent and just given it to some knight or some lord whose achievements were solely on the other side of the ocean. You know, I love my state of New Jersey, but the fact remains that the reason it's given that name is that it wasn't even assigned by a king. It was uh, subdivided from the, from the owner of the colony of New York because of his defense of the island of Jersey. Thomas Jefferson is pointing this out, that these things are arbitrary. We don't want to see them again. We hope that you're not suggesting that this is what you're going to do again. But I always think that's in their mind. You know, the British government were appointing governors. Those governors were taxing people. There was a lot of room for additional trouble that could come from things that the ministry could decide they would do that hadn't been done. You know, maybe starting to collect some rents or taxes that they hadn't previously. So I think that was always in the back of their mind. And Jefferson really brings that to the fore. That we shall at this time also take notice of an error in the nature of our land holdings, which crept in at an early period of our settlement, the introduction of the feudal tenures into the kingdom of England, earlier stages of the Saxon settlement, feudal holdings were certainly altogether unknown, and very few, if any, had been introduced at the time of the Norman conquest. Our Saxon ancestors held their lands as they did their personal property in absolute dominion. William the Norman first introduced that system generally. The lands which had belonged to those who fell in the Battle of Hastings and in the subsequent insurrections of his reign, formed a considerable portion of the lands of the whole kingdom. These he granted out, subject to feudal duties, as did he also a great number of his new subjects. But this still left much in the hands of his Saxon subjects, held of no superior and not subject to feudal conditions. These, therefore, by express laws, enacted to render uniform the system of military defense, which were made liable to the same military duties as if they had been feuds. They had not been surrendered to the king. These, therefore, okay, so why is he talking about that? These, therefore, still form the basis or groundwork of the common law to prevail whatsoever. America was not conquered by William the Norman, nor its land surrendered to him or by any of his successors. Possessions there are undoubtedly of the alloidal nature. Our ancestors, however, who migrated hither were farmers, not lawyers. So Jefferson's basically going back in history and saying even the Norman king, which is the king that the current king would essentially base the lineage on, is, you know, did not control every piece of property in England. Such is the same here. And that only the, you know, happenstance of the fact that there were farmers and not lawyers settling this area resulted in an error. What he writes in the summary view of the rights of British North America is ample ground to take from when he has to write the Declaration of Independence. Also gives him the reputation to want to be to be chosen for that job by John Adams. 
I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. If you like the program, please tell someone about it. Post it on your blog. Um, talk about it. Here's a new one I can say now. Talk about it on your own podcast. <laughs> I couldn't say that when I started. Thanks for listening.